From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. Not only am I writing for a broad audience, but I'm trying to, to sort of hold the hand of scientists. And I say like, okay, we can say that half of people who took this drug got better. It's like, people get really, really nervous when you say that because the number is actually 48.3%. Well, it's like in big terms and in, in impact and in being able to reach the audience, saying half is much more effective than 48.3 or whatever, right? And so uh, being able to speak both languages is really, really important in that, in that regard. On this episode of What the Job, I talk with science communication expert Vince Tejasaputra. Vince is the director of scientific communications at the American Lung Association, which means he spends a lot of his time taking complex scientific language and making it understandable to general audiences. A scientist himself with a PhD in pulmonary physiology, Vince has always had a knack for explaining science to non-scientists. We talk about the transition from graduate school to the working world, the challenges of scientific communication in the age of misinformation, and we even spend a little bit of time talking about Vince's talent as a trained opera singer. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. So what's your name and what's your job? My name is Vince Tejasaputra, and I'm the Director of Scientific Communications at the American Lung Association here in Chicago, Illinois. And what do you do as the Director of Communications for the, what is it, the Lung Association? American Lung Association. So uh, I am part scientist, part communications. Um, So most of what my job is, is translating the research that we fund uh, through the various grants and awards. Um, to our various stakeholders, like donors, um, you know, uh, patients and doctors that want to know what kind of research that we're funding and, and the sort of impact that um, our, our funding makes on the world of uh, lung health and lung disease. And how did you get into this kind of job? What was it about lung health that made you interested? So my background, my PhD was in pulmonary physiology. Um, I finished my PhD in 2017, um, and I, you know, during my time in, in graduate school, um, I was really good at explaining science to non-scientists, and specifically, we were recruiting research volunteers for our studies, and the best way to recruit them is to make them feel like they're part of the world of science, and they, and they are, and so just taking a little bit of extra time and say, you know, uh, you are here because of this specific disease, and it's really important that you're here because we can't study you otherwise. And just taking a little bit of time, and uh, I hate the term dumbing it down, but certainly like educating them at a level that they understand. Layman's uh, makes, terms. Layman's terms, exactly. Makes them feel like that they are part of the conversation and contributing. Uh, and, and so I realize that that skill extends to, you know, from one person to 10,000 people um, or more uh, in, a, in a readership. Um, and it's really important today, especially uh, during COVID, and especially with all the scientific misinformation out there. So um, not only am I interested in speaking to lay people, but I, uh, I'm really interested in, in training other scientists to do the same. Now, that's fascinating. And I definitely want to talk to you about misinformation. It's something that I am kind of obsessed with these days, as I think most people are, many people are, uh, in good ways or bad ways. Uh, but I'm... I'm really interested in this idea of being able to explain these difficult, high-level academic scientific concepts to laymen. That must come in handy when you're doing something like like fundraising communications where people want to give to support something and they need to know what it is that they're supporting. Exactly. When you talk, like, for example, when we, uh, um, what I'm creating... um little brochure or a little or I'm writing a speech to address donors being able to tie their uh, specific donation and not just numbers on a check but for them to realize this money is going towards 
training a person for this specific study, or it's going to this piece of equipment uh, that's going to address a specific disease or a specific study, then they see themselves as part of uh, as part of that ecosystem. And so they're more likely to um, you know, give more generously and also come back for more. And I think that does set up an expectation to then close the loop after that study is done. You know, and so it, it's a cycle. So you gave us money uh, two years ago. Here's what happened. We funded this person. They did this great study. They published it. And now it's part of a, a larger body of knowledge. So you, you have to report back. Yeah. And, and that's something that um, it's really hard to do uh, at our organization, only because, you know, compared to federal programs like NSERC or CAHR in Canada and in the U.S., um, National Institutes of Health, um, those grants are like five or six years. And most of our grants at the American Lung Association are two years. And so for anybody who is in academia or, or, or knows the grant structure, you don't publish in two years. You publish in like three or four years. And so uh, once they are out, you know, out from under our umbrella, um, it's really hard to get them back and, and um, share with us you know, where, where they've gone. So we're trying to build a grassroots engagement with them and say, you're part of our team. Um, once you know, once you're, you've left the nest, you're still part of the American Lung Association team, and we want to hear about your great success. Sounds like there's a lot of different types of writing involved in your job. You mentioned speech writing, but also reports. How, coming from a science background, how were you prepared to do this kind of writing? It's funny because actually it's backwards. <laughs> My scientific writing training uh, is completely different than, than what I'm doing now. Um, <clears throat> mostly we're trained to build from a broad background. You know, this is what we know. This is what's missing. This is why we're doing this study. Um, between my time in academia and my job now, I spent two years um, in a science policy fellowship in the federal government. Um, and so I learned to write it the other way. Instead of starting broadly, I started with what is the point? And so when we're writing for executives in the federal government, you know, we like to think, oh, they're on the metro on their way to work and they have a huge stack of papers and they can only read the two lines on top of your memo in bold. So you better make it fast. And so translating that into writing more broadly, like how do you grab the attention of, uh, of a perpetually distracted audience, right? Um, that's why most people now, uh, when they read the news, and I'm using air quotes, read the news, um, they only skim the headlines. Nobody really clicks through to the article. And so um, there's a lot there to learn about grabbing the attention. Um, of an audience and, and telling exactly what you need to and what you mean in as few words as possible. It definitely sounds like engagement also a big part of your job. I mean, you've talked about that a little bit. How do you, you know, I was really struck when you were talking about how you're writing for someone in government and you're imagining them taking the Metro, you don't have much time and they have to read it. Do you go through that exercise with a lot of your writing? You try to imagine exactly who your audience is and then tailor it to that? Or is it just, that's a specific example? Yeah, and as you mentioned, I, I write for a variety of, uh, of reasons, and I'm always thinking about the audience first, right? So for example, I also am a distracted audience, and if the scroll bar on an article is tiny, I know that there's, it's more than three pages, I probably am not going to read that article. And so I'm, I'm always thinking about um, the user experience, right? Like, is this a pleasurable thing for me to do? Um, even in terms of syntax and in, in terms of white space on a page, um, like breaking up paragraphs, breaking up long sentences, all of these things, if you make it easy for somebody to digest, then they will digest it. So that's a big part of engagement is, is empathy and empathizing with the user experience. I'm also curious because you have a PhD related to this field. How often do you feel like what you learned in your PhD applies to your job? And I bring this up because often with people who have a doctorate, I have a doctorate, for example, they that have a different type of job, people think that maybe your degree has no uh, application to what you do now. And I'm just curious uh, what you think about that. So occasionally, um, well, okay, not occasionally, all the time, <laughs> my, my job is uh, as an SME, as a subject matter expert, right? So because I'm at the Lung Association and my background is in lung disease, um, I, I will get 
to review some articles or some blogs um, that are maybe a little bit uh, written too casually um, or, or maybe like a little overreaching. So I try to sort of skirt the line between something that's way too technical uh, and something that is snappy and being able to grab the attention. So for example, like not only am I writing for uh, for a broad audience, but I'm trying to, to sort of hold the hand of scientists. And I say like, okay, we can say that half of people who took this drug got better. It's like, people get really, really nervous when you say that because the number is actually 48.3%. Well, it's like in big terms and in, in impact in being able to reach the audience, saying half is much more effective than 48.3 or whatever, right? And so uh, being able to speak both languages is really, really important in that in that regard. So like relationship building also pretty important to your job. Absolutely. Uh, and because, you know, as... as it's really hard to decipher what's real and what's not, especially in, in, in these studies. Um, expectation management starts with relationship building. And so uh, you've seen a lot of these overtures uh, about like trust the science, whatever, whichever side you're on on a particular issue, they say trust the science. And it's like, well, science is, is not infallible. Science is run by people. And we as a as a community of scientists we try and put hard rules on squishy things in life like we see a bee touch a flower and then it touches another flower and over time they converge genetically or whatever right and so we say oh that must happen all the time well you know we we've devised all these statistical tests and rules to, to try and our best guess and so it all all boils down to p.05 like a, a statistical uh, certainty or, or um, an agreed upon statistical uncertainty, right? And that's really hard to tell people uh, who are not in science, right? We say, uh, that's why we use words like the data suggests that, or this, uh, uh, you know, we conclude that the, together the data, um, we never say proves, we never say uh, causes, and that's really hard for people to swallow. Uh, and so, when you take just a little bit of time and say like science works by building brick by brick, we, you know, these big cures or, or these big, uh, you know, these amazing treatments, they don't just happen overnight. Uh, and so it has backfired, right? When you're thinking about people who are skeptical of, of the COVID vaccine, it's like, oh, how were you able to get it so fast? Like just in eight months, it's like, no, we've been working on this for 10 years. And, you know, we had, we learned from previous viruses, previous outbreaks. And so, you know, a ge the general understanding of science as a, as a philosophy and, and, you know, a, a way of understanding the world, it's really hard to convey that to a lay audience. Well, and you brought up that example of saying half of participants as opposed to like 48.3. Um, I think misinformation when it comes to science has no qualms about that sort of like discrepancy. So you get really cherry pick stats or you get, you know, just totally made up things. And there's tons of studies that I think show that the more sensational the news, you talked a lot about how people don't read full articles anymore. It's headlines. And if it's super long, they're definitely not going to read it. Um, the more sensational the headline, then the more likely people are to be attracted to it. That's what drives all those social media algorithms. Now, you're working for a lung foundation at a time where there is a respiratory virus that's caused a pandemic. I'm curious how much in your own work, do you, do you encounter misinformation as well? Does it, does it crop up on your radar or is it something that's more adjacent and you just notice as, a, as an everyday person? So it's interesting. I've been with the Lung Association for about six months. <clears throat> I know that a lot of the frontline work that we do, like our social media managers, they see that a lot. You know, in, in um, like people read the DM, real people read DMs that you send to these big foundations, and uh, and you, you sort of take that for granted in in a way that like, oh, it's just a bot. It's like no, they're real people. And so sometimes we're we're faced with this. Uh, as, as an organization, right? Like we try and be positive. We give accurate information. We give actionable information. Um, and when we can confidently correct the record, we do, you know, like we have a, we have a media call every day and we look at all the mentions of American Lung Association in the news and the media and uh, also other articles 
about lung health or you know pollution policy or whatever that may be of interest and so occasionally we'll we'll see something that uses the uh our organization's name to sell an air filter or something and so we'll reach out and say you know this is a violation of of trademark like we don't want to be associated with this um that's pretty much as far as we go like correcting misattributions um but personally like it's really hard because when you're talking about uh, combating misinformation, a lot of the time it's like a pre-aroused audience that is already already at the conclusion. And as you say, cherry picking data, um, it's hard as a scientist because we are te we tend to write uh, both sides, right? We say, okay, our data uh, lines up with other studies that did, did something similar, and so we think that this is the case. Conversely, these ten other studies did the opposite, you know, and that's a way that we contextualize our studies. Well, now having spent some time in policy and in politics, um, we're just looking for the best way to support our position. <laughs> and, you know, we we collect uh, the arguments that, um, that sort of argue against our position only so we can be ready to rebut that. Mm -hmm. But, but we'll, we won't, you know, give the opposition <laughs> the ammunition <laughs> they need to rebut our point. So, uh, so, so it's interesting, like, and, and, you know, as an organization, especially like one with 117 year history, and like we, ALA was, um, was founded uh, at the beginning of the tuberculosis pandemic in the 19, in the 1900s. So um, it's, it's, it's an organization that enjoys a long history and a long positive history. And so, you know, we, we try really hard to maintain that. Uh, reputation. I just wonder for science communicators in general, or anybody who is getting into science communication, it's got to be something that's on people's mind if you're communicating science that someone else might take it a different direction. And I think, you know, being a scientist yourself, having that background, there's, I can't remember the name of that theory, but there is that theory that talks about how, you know, the, the more of a, a, a an expert you are in a subject, the more you realize that you don't know about that subject, the vastness of it. Uh, whereas if you're completely ignorant of something, you may actually think you have a better grasp. And I think, I think it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Is that it? Is that it? Okay. I, I'm going to look it up live here. So I'm not giving him misinformation. I'm glad somebody's being a good host of this podcast, right? <laughs> I'm verifying it. But um, yes, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the cognitive bias whereby people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. Right. Yes. And I think... For COVID misinformation specifically, you know, when I see it on things like Twitter or Facebook, I do think in part it is related to that. It's such a foreign concept. And even when you see anybody like Fauci or whoever trying to explain it, any science communicator trying to explain, you know, the precautions taken and the data, it's just so hard in the face of some other outlets that maybe is a bad actor coming out and saying like well no and here's this chart we cherry picked that's just going to show you that you know the same amount of vaccinated people are in the hospital as unvaccinated and we'll just ignore the fact that you know there's a giant population of vaccinated and a tiny population of unvaccinated right and i think there must be it must be something that i imagine all all science communicators are going to have to worry about so i imagine having a bit of a science background is really helpful for getting into that field yeah, uh, and and I think like one thing that um, people who are interested in science communication feel that is very daunting is reaching people who will never be able to be reached. Um, trying to reason with people who are unreasonable, who are arguing in bad faith, right? And so that that's really difficult because those people will be the loudest in a, if you're giving a talk, they'll ask questions and be disruptive. And and what do you do? Like you can't walk into a room of people who are already skeptical of you and just start pointing fingers like that, you know, and it goes back to racial to relationship building. And, and I think like first, first we are people, we are friends and we are family. And I think like COVID really strained that and, and sort of like redefined how we draw lines in our relationship. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard, like it, it, it's really hard. Um, I, I have no answers other than to, you know, step back for a second and, and say like, well, everybody is um, potentially at risk for misinformation, even me, right? Like, for sure. And, yeah. and you're right, like sensational articles that they like, 
I can't believe that. I'm definitely going to click on this. And then I'm going to share it before I say like, are there any other articles that say that? Like, because I'm a human too, though, with the same cognitive biases and, and, and habits uh, as anybody else. So um, that goes the other way when, when you're defending science or you're defending a particular position in science, even in the face of uh, a bunch of other data that, that sh should disprove you, right? Um, we, we, really cling, we really cling to those. No, I've definitely been embarrassed by posting or sharing something that turned out to be fake. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can admit and be okay with being wrong about things, because, you know, we talk about bad actors, I think sometimes with misinformation. I know we're going we're going in a different direction. We'll come back to careers in one second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with misinformation, I think sometimes people get so invested into it, it becomes, you know, ideologically entwined with who they are, that it's, there's kind of no going back. To disavow that, that stance that you've taken is kind of to disavow a part of your identity and, you know, maybe a community you're entrenched with. So I actually have a lot of sympathy for the people who are, you know, I don't know, for lack of a better term, far gone um, in terms of, of misinformation. But I do want to get back to your career. Um, how did you get, how did you get involved in this world? Like, did you, were you doing, when you were doing your doctorate, were you thinking, I want to get into communicating science because I'm, I'm good at it. I have a natural talent for it. So I, I know, I knew I was good at communicating because, you know, I won a few awards for best presentation and best poster and stuff. Um, when we were, when I was in grad school, we sort of uh, started this thing called a slide, uh, PowerPoint slide audit. And so whenever somebody in the lab had a presentation, they had to give it into our, per into our small lab first. And we would take each slide and say, you can't have three graphs on a slide. Like this is too busy. You can't have 50 slides for a 30 minute talk. Uh, and so I, I, I realized like a lot of our a lot of our pitfalls are like, we're afraid that our committee member is going to stand up and say, that's wrong. So we put everything on the slide to make sure that never happens. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I found that this, this skill of communicating science and communication in general extended far beyond that. And so I, like most people in graduate school had uh, dreams of becoming tenure track professor. Um, and you know, two years into my postdoc, and you know, looking down the barrel of maybe five or six more years, I realized, you know, I think I, I want to try something else. Um, and so, from that, I, I applied to the um, science policy fellowship that I mentioned through the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And so, um, plug for people who are interested in science policy in Canada, um, my tax has a similar program in Ottawa. But essentially, this program places uh, scientists um, who have PhDs or masters in engineering in the federal government as uh, as scientific advisors. And so, you know, I worked at the National Science Foundation, um, which is uh, which we you know we funded everything but biomedical science. Um, so it's like the equivalent of of Canada's NSERC. Um, there were people working in the White House, people working at the Pentagon. Uh, and so it was a, a really interesting, essentially two-year boot camp to rewire your brain from being an academic to somebody with high academic expertise that can contribute to a decision maker, right? And so I thought it was so interesting. Uh, now that we have a different president, uh, I specifically signed up because I didn't agree with the Trump administration, right? And I thought like, oh, we're like, you know, there was, there was, there's still a lot of uh, climate change deniers, which is just nuts. Um, but I was like, well, somebody's got to be in the room. There's got to be a real scientist in the room uh, shaping the way that these press releases go out, or at least the, the way that we talk about strategic messaging behind these big comms machines, you know? And so um, I, I realized like when I was at the National Science Foundation, we had a staff of about 50 and there were only three PhD scientists and two of us were current fellows and one was a former fellow. Right. And so suffice to say there were almost no scientists in a comm shop of a massive science agency with a $10 billion budget. Right. That's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, that's really where, where I, I honed my skill of like, Oh, okay. You know, using, uh, research techniques that I never thought I would use, um, like qualitative qualitative methods, you know, doing a survey, asking people, um, you know, what they want from a federal uh, 
from a federal funding agency um, and then using my experience in academia to empathize with what you know it's confusing to read uh, a request for uh, a request for proposals like it's just legal jargon that i as a scientist who's you know enjoyed many years of like grant funding i've actually never submitted a grant like I've never clicked submit on a grant. I've, I've submitted and gotten lots of grants. And I realized like as a University of Alberta or when I was at you know, UC San Diego, there was a grants office that did all that administrative work. You know? And this coming at a time where uh, really like the issues of, of racial bias and, and, and racial inequality, uh, especially in, in the science world was, was coming up around the time that George Floyd was murdered and um, you know, really sparked this latest round of national conversation around that. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of these people who don't end up at University of Alberta's, don't end up at UCSD's or MIT's or Harvard's, they end up at um, R2 or, or, or R2 universities, uh, tier two universities who have high research activity, but they're not bringing in billions of dollars in research funding. They have to do their own administrative work, right? Like writing a budget, making sure that the references are correct, getting signatures from deans and stuff. That's all like eight to 20 hours of work. And so thinking about like, oh, I was privileged. How can we improve the experience for those people to make research funding more equitable, right? And so, you know, it was both like my technical expertise as a lung scientist, but also like my cultural expect, uh, expertise um, that helped me shape our communication strategy at NSF and now uh, at ALA. It seems like, you know, and I, I think actually academia is changing and I think academia is starting to recognize that since mostly there aren't a lot of tenure track positions out there, um, the kind of jobs we prepare our, our doctoral and even master's students for, um, we need to prepare them for jobs outside of academia. But it seems like for what you do, it, it's such a, a perfect fit. And even in your world, there seems to be like a need for these people with graduate degrees, like high-level research experience to enter these other fields so that they can bring that extra experience with them. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is I still feel like bouts of guilt of leaving academia. And it's like this weird academic Catholic guilt, you know, like, <laughs> uh, in, in a way that like, if you're on a tenure track, professor, you're a failed scientist. And, and th that has been said to me uh, both subtly and not so subtly. Um, and, and I think like that we're really doing a disservice because, you know, there, there is, there's no, I'm going to pull a, a, a statistic out. I think is like only 15% of, of PhDs go on to become a professor, mm -hmm. you know? And so when we say like alternative careers, it was like, well, really the alternative career is being a professor because it's 85% of uh, everyone else who gets a PhD does something else and is, is happy to do so. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm glad that, that you have me on this uh, podcast and hopefully other graduate students or undergraduate students who are thinking about going to grad school can think about where they want to go, um, where they could go by talking to people who have done that mm -hmm. without assuming that you must be a tenure track. And if you're not, you have failed because by all accounts, I, I've enjoyed a lot of success uh, in every field that I've, I've been in. And, and, you know, every now and then I'm like, I still get a request to review a, a scientific paper as a peer reviewer, you know, and I'm like, Oh, people still respect me <laughs> in science. <laughs> you know. So uh, it, it's, it's something that, and, and, and you're right. I think it is changing, it's changing slowly, but um, you know, a, a lot of it has to do with, with sort of mutual respect of, of, you know, the mentees as much as the mentors. Definitely. I agree with that. And I've had the similar experiences since my PhD of um, former professors or whoever saying like, oh, but are you happy doing this other thing? I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> a lot happier than I was. I don't have any regrets about leaving, but I realized in, during my program that I didn't want to stay. But this isn't, I'm not the guest, so let's keep going with you. I'm very curious about, like, I know you have kind of an interesting story about how you got your current position, right? Like, you wrote your own job description, I remember you saying, before we started recording. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, my fellowship was only two years, and, and it's an ex, it's sort of an accelerated program. 
uh, that really forces you to do networking so you can find a job. And, and so I think like the one of the the big selling points of this of that fellowship was that people who come into this program get full time jobs in various fields, whether it's you know staying in policy or working on the hill or um, or or going to nonprofit as I did. And so I started applying to all these different jobs that like sort of fit 60 to 70% of what I wanted to do in that criteria. Um, you know, working in a comm shop or working at, um, as like a, a subject matter expert and, uh, and a big pull of coming to Chicago was that my, uh, my girlfriend had just moved here. We, we, we met right before the pandemic uh, and she's like, oh, I'm moving to Chicago. And I said, okay, well, I want to work at the White House for Joe Biden. So I'm going to stay in, in Washington, D.C. And, and so, you know, what ended up happening was I, I applied to a couple of jobs and one of them was at the Alzheimer's Association. And so it was the uh, director of scientific engagement. And this person would travel around the country and give talks to, you know, different stakeholder groups about the kind of research that Alzheimer's funds. And so I uh, had an interview there. It went really well. They really liked me, but they said, you're a lung guy, not a brain guy. We really need somebody with neuroscience background. Sorry. And so I pouted for a couple of months because I thought this was like uh, the best job ever. I'd like, and, and it didn't really exist anywhere else. So I took that job description and I copy, uh, and I replaced all mentions of Alzheimer's with lung disease, right? And so I thought there has to be a lung version of this and it doesn't exist. And so it was really, I mean, right place, right time, right person. Um, I had been connected with, um, you know, some of the leaders in, in at ALA and, and had a series of conversations with them. And, you know, I did my homework and, and sort of looked at um, where they were allocating their budget. Um, you know, year after year, they were increasing their research budget. And I knew like contemporary events of COVID and the surrounding conversations around COVID meant that they really you know, we're, we're sort of missing a scientist who is an everyday man, or at least uh, a, an everyday person who can talk to everyday people uh, in a way that is, is, is a two-way conversation, right? And, and so, you know, I, I, I pitched that and, and, you know, over the next few months, you know, they sort of worked it internally and they created the position. Uh, and so for me, it was, it was, you know, everything that I wanted to do and none that I, nothing that I didn't want to do. And so, uh, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I know it's a, a, a very bold thing to send the CEO a job description that you just wrote for yourself and ask for whatever salary you want. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, I, I can't imagine any other way it would have worked out. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I'm, I'm in the right place now. It's, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like I, the, I, the jobs just turned into what you expected when you were when you had those those ideas. Well, you know, I, I've been here for six months, and part of the job is defining the job. Mm -hmm. You know, at first, people were were giving me things to clear. Uh, is the science is the science right? And then, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time doing copy editing, which I'm really good at. But I realized, like, I'm not being paid as a copy editor, so like, a lot of my own personal professional development was figuring out where in this organization could we be more efficient you know so and i think this is not something that's unique to us but like sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing and so um end up like writing a description of a study more than once like three people do it differently say like, well we can start at the top you know as soon as we hear about a study we can summarize it and say it impacts this this and this and it hits these three points of national conversation and then from that, you can write a press release, you can do talking points, you can write a blog, but you start with the same quality and easy to digest starting material. Um, and so it's, it's, been, it's been really fun figuring out where I fit. And, and again, like I still sort of struggle to define who, what I do in the, in the organization other than say that I'm both a technical and cultural translator of science. You know, and 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 figuring out like where in the organization can we use um, this this wealth of of knowledge that we're funding um, for our own for our own mission. So, for example, like one of our big pushes is for electric uh, for uh, federal funding for electric vehicles and electric school buses, right? 
well, if we're funding somebody doing that sort of work, we should be using that as a talking point when we're on the hill, right? Vice versa, if we're, uh, we have ears on the hill and we're figuring out that there's a new, um, a new like avian flu is, is on the rise again, for example, right? Um, that can shape the way that we fund our research. And maybe we, you know, I'm, I'm in no way <laughs> representing the American Lung Association tonight, but I'm saying <laughs> like, like that is a way that, that we can, we can put our ear to the ground and say, okay, this is how we be agile, you know, as a smaller organization compared to like, you know, we don't have a billion dollars. We don't, well, NIH is like $40 billion. We're not that big at all, but we can be agile and be strategic in where we put our funding. So it's been really fun. Um, sort of like slithering between between roles and between issues i you know you've just started this position so i mean you're, you're still getting into it and you're probably thinking about that but i am curious about what you think where you can where you might go what the future could be um would you stay in communications do you think you'd want to go more into like a policy type role i, I think that's one of the beautiful things about not pursuing academia is it's pretty versatile you can do lots of things uh i like leadership um, and, and I think, um, I think I'm a good decision maker, um, especially like hard decisions and, and that's where I want to go next. And I think like being able to build up, um, a communications repertoire and, and sort of like having ears in all parts of the organization to sort of figure out like, where should we go as an organization? That's something that sets me up. Um, so, you know. I'm open. We're building something and I'm hoping that uh, they will have me for as long as they want to have me. Uh, and then when the next amazing thing comes up, I'm going to definitely take advantage of it. I'm curious how you find the writing as a scientist. I know we talked about this a little bit before, but do you find, cause I find writing very hard and I come from an English background, but like, do you find it like writing a speech? Is that something that just came kind of naturally to you? I mean, you said you were a good copy editor. I'm not, I'm not surprised by that, but that sort of more creative writing and stuff like that, is it just a kind of a skill you had before or is it something that you really have to work on and, and work hard at? Uh, well, I was always very persuasive, I think. And, and, you know, knowing your audience, like in order to write a speech, I first like, who are you talking to? Right. Or, or is it a bunch of uh, donors who have lost a loved one to lung cancer? Well, then we're going to talk about lung cancer. Right. Uh, and, and so figuring out what are the, you know, it goes back to, empathy and the customer experience, like what are the pain points, you know, what are the things that are most important to your audience that you need, that they need to see themselves in your words, right? And so that's, that's a really hard thing to quantify and describe in, in a writing skill. And like, I am an okay writer. I think I'm a better speaker than I am a writer, but um, also like I, try not to put as much pressure on the first draft as other people do. I was like, creating something is much harder than just tearing somebody else's stuff apart. And so I tried to separate, I tried to separate my ego from the eventual ton of red ink on a, on a draft because that's the process, right? Um, and so that's something that I really enjoy. Um, and so like, I'm learning a lot about marketing communications in, in my role, like, like, you know, my, uh, um, I, I report to the chief marketing officer and, and she came from for-profit, um, like she worked in toys, toy, toy marketing for a long time. And so I'm sort of like learning, okay, for large swaths and audiences who are already pre-interested in the American lung or lung health, like what are the tools that we can use to learn more about them? Is it a focus group? Is it, um, you know, like do we hire uh, consultants to go out and, and you know, run surveys or, you know, like just information gathering in a way that is a little bit more abstract as uh, as a quantitative scientist that I am using qualitative methods. So, uh, you know, like I say, like it's squishy, and I don't want to I don't want to offend qualitative scientists, but it's squishy in the way that it's it's, it's really hard to put a number to these things. I think one thing grad school does do, and you were talking about drafting, is it, it really gets you good at receiving feedback, bad feedback sometimes. You can kind of, like, I, I've never had qualms about that. And our, our last guest um, is a woman who writes for video games, and she was talking about how 
the first draft. The most important thing about the first draft is that it's done because uh, that's where you build from. That's where you get your feedback and that's where you they work with people to make it stronger. So Yeah, I, I, I love that. <laughs> Before we get to the lightning round, that's that's coming up. I have a question that's not directly related to your job, but I think is interesting all the same and I think people want to hear about it and that is what is this about you singing national anthem at sporting events? Okay, so uh, this is uh, drunk story time. So uh, my my first, I think it was like one of the first nights I was in Edmonton. We had, after orientation, we went to the bar. Uh, I think it was oh, the Irish bar, like right next to, uh, right next to campus there. You know, during orientation, they say like, oh, say something interesting about yourself. And so like, oh, I'm, I'm from California. I'm an exercise physiologist uh, and I am a classically trained opera singer. And so whenever you say that, someone's going to be like, oh, you guys should sing for us. And I and I like had that off. I was like, you know, I never sing for free, but I love scotch. So later at the bar, you know, you don't forget something like that. And so I went to the washroom and came back and there's six shots of scotch lined up. And so <laughs> I end up singing some, I ended up singing something in the bar uh, and the athletic director was there. <laughs> and so like a week later they approached me and they're like, Hey, do you want to audition for singing the national anthem <laughs> for, for university of Alberta athletics? And so that's sort of how I uh, started doing, you know, I was the official national anthem singer for university of Alberta. Um, Athletics uh, sang for the Oilers for a little bit. The Oilers rookies, you know, um, did an Eskimos game. Now uh, the Elk. Um, that part of my life really set me up to address stage fright, you know. And so um, I mentioned that I enjoy public speaking immensely, but I always get butterflies. And I think that, you know, I, I think the largest crowd I ever sang for was uh, an Eskimos game, and they played. Uh, and it was like a very big 50-50. So there were like 40,000 people at Commonwealth. And there was like, I had a monitor in my ear and there was music blasting at like a different, at a different uh, beat than it was coming into my ear. And so it was one of those things like, okay, you need to have stage presence. You need to calm your nerves. And that's something that really helped me uh, establish stage presence when I'm speaking to large crowds or now small crowds on Zoom. But um, it's, it's a great, you know, most of my life has been a crossover from things that I've enjoyed personally and just been able to, uh, you know, roll that into something professional. You know, it's interesting because you're a trained opera singer and that's a career path on its own, very different from the one that you're on. So how did it happen that you wound up in science? My mother passed away when I was 14 um, and she was a trained singer. Like my, my father was a piano player too. Um, that's actually how they met. Um, but when she passed away, you know, it was like something that I wanted to like keep her memory alive. And so I started singing and I started getting coaching. And so I've been training for over 20 years, um, mostly singing in choirs, but like occasionally doing solo stuff. And, and it was just something that, that really fed me, you know, in a way that, you know, when you're reading music and you're in a group, you're, you're not really thinking about other parts of your life. And, and that really brought enrichment to, to my professional life. So. And, you know, the singing bit and uh, and pulmonary bit also works really well, right? And so uh, you know, just another aside, it's like when I, I studied um, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, it's a disease uh, from smoking. Um, whenever you run a, a study on a clinical population, you have to also study a control group. And so most people who are in choirs are, you know, a little bit older, like in their 60s or 70s, and they're retired, and they are very healthy. Uh, and so they want to volunteer for studies. And so that was a great way for me to recruit uh, healthy control uh, volunteers for our studies. And so, um, you know, there's another plug there for giving back to your community is, 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 you know, convincing people to come and volunteer for your research study. It's wild how unpredictable your journey has been. And yet also, I mean, the bits and pieces seem to tie together so well. I mean, you're right. It's all been serendipitous. And, and I think like you, we will get to the advice part formally later. But I think like I was so stressed out as undergrads thinking like what you want to do when you grow up. And I had never envisioned that I'm 35 now where I'd be now and, and just doing what I love, getting paid, you know, 
a, a decent salary to do something that I really enjoy and still be able to enjoy life and, and not worry so much about clocking in at nine and being such in a hurry to get off at five o'clock um, that you know, whatever your passions are outside of work, if it's like hockey or, or, you know, some, some art or whatever, like let that show in all parts of your life. You know, like I, I met my graduate advisor at a conference at the Chateau Lake Louise and we played hockey together. Like I didn't know how to play hockey, but I was like, Oh, I'll do this. And, and so like, just, you know, whenever I like, whenever I go to networking events, it's a very DC thing to say, Oh, what do you do? You know, what I said, like, what are you really good at? That's <laughs> not work related. And they're like, Oh yeah, well, I'm a great cook, you know, or like, or, or whatever. It's like way more interesting thing to build a relationship with a person instead of with a position. For sure. Okay. I think then we'll go on to the lightning round, which is brought to you by our affinity partner, TD insurance. Ask these questions to all the guests. Um, the first one is, have you ever been fired? Ooh. Um, no, I have not been fired. That's I've fine. like quit with double, double barrels, but I've never <laughs> been fired. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? No, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> That's fair. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I wanted to be a pilot. Really? And then, and then when I was in second grade, uh, I, I couldn't figure out why I had to squint all the time. If you wear glasses, you can't be a pilot. Oh man. Sad. Yeah. Uh, what, what about when you started university? What did you want to be? Um, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an MD. Uh, then I got a D in organic chemistry. <laughs> you just need and, then an M. A, and then I got a PhD. Like again, you GPA are a doesn't matter. Here we go. <laughs> What's, uh, something that, um, that you wish people understood about your job or something that I think might be confused when people hear about your job? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Well, not many people are in my job. I would say uh, if I would default to like, what is my job? I, I will always start with, I'm a scientist. And I think we, we talked about it a couple of times. We're like, science is more of an art than it is an exact science. And, and, and so I think like the, the reason why we tiptoe around using data and numbers to suggest a position is because we are afraid that we're wrong. And I think that um, it's okay for scientists to be wrong. And I think it strengthens the field and society when we admit that. As a great example, at the beginning of the pandemic, people said, don't wear masks or don't buy masks. They don't do anything, right? And that clearly changed. The data showed something different. And so... Uh, as a community and, and, you know, policies had to come out about, about masking. It's like, well, wait a minute, you can't flip flop. And it's actually like, no, we saw the data. We saw the numbers went a different way. And so we changed our mind and we can do that. And that's like one of the hardest things to, to convey to, to people about science is that it changes and it's done by people. Right? We're not robots. Uh, well, so there's like some robots for like, like cutting and stuff, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, like, we we choose a hypothesis that that we want to happen like <laughs> uh that's that's how science works so um that's what i would say that that science scientists are wrong sometimes and it's part of the game you have a law professor tim caulfield who does tons his whole focus is on misinformation says that uh, scientists changing or admitting they were wrong and correcting mistakes that's like a badge of honor it should be done all the time anyway. yeah absolutely uh, what advice might you have for someone who feels like they're stuck, like they're in a career rut, they need a change? Uh, you know, you hate this word, but it's networking. Um, it's it's just a doing informational interview. It's just talking to people. Um, I've done so many of them, people who are in my field, who are out of field, like way left field, to say like, what are your, how did you get to where you are now? And do you like it? So when they describe parts of their job that they like or they hate, I will write that down. And so actually, like, it, in the process of looking for jobs uh, in my last in the last year of my fellowship, I must have look, looked at five thousand job descriptions. And what I did was, I was like, whenever I read something, I was like, "Ooh, that sounds kind of cool." I would copy that bullet and paste it in a Word document, 
that has all the tasks that I would love to do at work, right? And so eventually, if you find something that even hits half of that, that's something they should apply to. That's really good advice. Um, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in this job? Oh, uh, well, I'm too short to be an athlete, although I was a college athlete. Um, what sport? I was a, I was a hammer thrower in the track and field team. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that's like the crossover with exercise physiology. <laughs> <laughs> All comes together. It, it really does. Uh, if you permit me to go backwards, I'll tell you how I got into that. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, I was a first year at university and, uh, my teammates were taking the supplement called Anator P70. And it, on, on the on the thing, it said, uh, this will change your DNA to grow bigger muscles. And I was, <laughs> I was a first year bio student. And I was like, there's no way that's true. And if it is, it has to be illegal. And so I looked up a professor at, uh, at the School of Medicine and I, I wrote him and I said, like, hey, do you know anything about this? He was an exercise uh, physiologist. He said, why don't you come in and we'll chat about it. And we had like a 30 minute chat and uh, it was BS. But he said, you, you seem interested in this kind of thing. Do you want to volunteer in my lab. And so that's what kicked off my research career. It's just a, a curiosity of, of something in my non-academic life. So um, much serendipity. It's wild. Yeah. I, I, to answer your question directly, though, I think I would have pursued music full time. I think I, I would love to have been like on the circuit as like an Asian Michael Bublé. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the world needs it. Yeah, via crooner. And maybe I can do that. Now I'm in Chicago. I think that there's lots of open mics. For sure. I'd buy your Christmas album, 100%. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about your job? Uh, that it changes every day. Yeah, and, and, and like, it's more of a function of how insane current times are, right? But um, like the ability... The requirement to be adaptable is my favorite bit. You know, like you use all the tools and experience that, that I've, I've amassed over, you know, my short career um, and, and sort of like, oh, I have a little bit of experience in this. Let's try this. Or like, you know, wh whatever is happening in politics or, or in policy, like, I don't know, thinking thinking of like new and innovative ways and, and um, improvising, like that's a lot of fun to me. Last one. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, what would you say or what advice might you have for yourself? It's okay to not know where you want to go. Because even if you do, you may not get there. I mean... You know, I wanted to be a professor. I ended up in the communications role and then now somewhere in between, you know. Um, and you may find that you love to do something else. Um, that is not something that society or your folks or your graduate advisor tells you that you should do. Well, I've loved having you on this show and chatting with you. It's been very fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh and, and I hope to, uh, to hear uh, many more of these. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job. And a special thanks to our guest, Vince Tejasaputra, for taking time to talk to us about his career. And as always, a reminder, the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sboard. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's it for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.